It's that time again, Our Town Live, where friends, family, people you know, and others you'd rather not know share with us their unique bits of wisdom. And now, here's Herb, your host, for another show. Today, we're meeting with Alan Hofstetter, a registered blood bank technologist subspecializing in blood banking. He has supervised the Loyola University Medical Center Blood Bank, as well as the Fantas Blood Preservation Lab in Cook County Hospital. Some of his professional appointments have been Inspector for the American Association of Blood Banks, Inspector for the College of American Pathologists, a member with the Institutional Biosafety Committee in Rush University. He has been a sought-after lecturer at Heinz VA Hospital, Loyola Hospital, and others. He has received awards from the Illinois Association of Blood Banks Ching Lee Memorial Lectureship for Outstanding Contribution to Patient Care and Education in Transfusion Medicine, and also Outstanding Contribution to Resident Education in Immunohematology and Blood Banking Department of Pathology at the Loyola University Medical Department of Pathology. Alan, tell us more. I'm certified as a registered medical technologist, and uh, I have a subspecialty in blood banking. Uh, basically, I'm what the public likes to call a lab tech, but there's a lot more to it than, than that particular title. Are you a senior vampire? Uh, that's, uh, boy, uh, it's usually the second or third statement out of anyone's mouth <laughs> that I must be a vampire. Because, yes, indeed, I have been taught how to phlebotomize people, and yes, we test blood. Why should someone donate blood? Oh, my, that... Uh, I don't even know where to start, and I have done some uh, donor recruitment in my time. So much of medicine was changed by the capacity to transfuse blood from one human to another. It, it was experimented with as early as the 1600s and actually only became successful in the early 1900s. But once it was codified and, and labs were developed and the concept of the blood bank became available, all of medicine changed. I don't think we could do much of the surgery we do today. I don't think we could treat our oncology patients today without the ability to take from one who's donating and give to someone who's in need. What are the benefits of being a blood donor? That's one of those sort of ephemeral things because what it makes me feel like is that I'm being contributory to society, that I'm being selfless, that I'm trying to pay it forward. You, you donate blood anonymously, and it's transfused anonymously, so you don't always know to whom your blood products will go. But I know that almost all the donors I'm aware of are just simply people who want to give back to society. Can anyone donate blood? Well, that's, that's also an interesting question. Uh, not just anyone can donate blood. 
one of the problems with donation is that you know you're looking at the uh, at a two-edged sword. Uh, you, as the donor, must be healthy enough so that if we draw blood from you, it won't uh, compromise you in any way. And you, as the donor, uh, must be healthy enough so that you don't compromise the person who's receiving your blood products. So we screen rather closely to ensure that both of those elements are covered. Has this current virus affected your part of the business, your profession, what you do? Have you seen effects on, on the blood banks because of this? Yes. I uh, started working in transfusion therapy in 1967, and um, I have seen a number of critical blood shortages throughout the world. We blood bankers uh, have this joke that says um, that there is uh, always a critical shortage of blood at around Christmas time. That lasts until the middle of summer, and then the other critical shortages from summer till Christmas. Now, of course, it's not that case all the time, but in the fall and uh, in the spring, we do quite well, and in the winter in the, and, and the summer, we have difficulty getting blood. This is the worst I've ever seen, and most of it has to do with the fact that with everyone's social distancing or uh, what the military, uh, the military is a term for social distancing that's kind of odd, with everybody being away from one another, um, we, we don't have the ability to call donors in, to get donors. We do a lot of blood donation in high schools and colleges. They're closed. We send blood uh, mobiles out to major uh, corporations and do two or three days of blood draw at the, at the location. We can't do that now because everyone is working from home. It's been dreadful. When I go to donate blood, what, is the, uh, what type of activity do I, do I get? Uh, test? How do they test me to make sure, other than me saying I'm fine, what, what do they do? Well, the, the donation process requires uh, an interview, a minor examination, and then the phlebotomy itself. For the interview, you will be asked probably upwards of 60 questions, which generally today is done by computer. You'll be able to sit in front of a computer and answer questions uh, right on the screen. They all have to do with whether you are healthy enough to donate, depending upon where you've been in the world and who or what you've been in contact with. There is also uh, the examination, which involves making certain that you don't have a fever, that your blood pressure is within normal limits, and uh, that your pulse is good. And there'll be a small and rather quick finger stick to determine whether you have sufficient red blood cells to donate. Most of us have a superfluity of blood, and we can always afford a pint without any difficulty or compromise to our bodies. But we do want to check that. We don't want to take anybody who is borderline anemic. Leave the, leave the blood in the original vessel, we say. Can my children donate? Is there a minimum age or maximum age for that matter? That is a great question because that's uh, been an interesting problem in the United States. You may donate blood from your 17th birthday on. And in some states, 
the legal limit is 16 with parental permission. And there are some states that don't allow it until you're 18 years of age. There used to be an upper limit, which was 66th birthday. But, oh, my God, the, uh, <laughs> the veterans coming back from World War II and Korea were very, very upset about that as they grew older and as they donated throughout their uh, post-war lives when they found out that just a single number like 66 was where they had to stop, they were angry. And uh, the blood banking industry changed that to no uh, upper end to the age as long as you were healthy. I've read about something called an automated donation. What is that? Well, until the last decade or so, uh, we drew a single unit of blood what the public likes to think of as a pint, because it is approximately a pint, from every individual and then process that blood into several uh, components. There are devices, uh, the technical term for them are uh, uh, extracorporeal pumps, which is just simply like a loop. You uh, insert a needle into the donor's arm and the blood is removed by the machine with a pump and it extracts what you are there to donate, and it returns whatever is not necessary back to your body. Uh, we do that uh, quite a bit in this country for platelet manufacture, where we just extract the platelets uh, that way. It's called um, apheresis, and if you're donating platelets, it's called platelet-pheresis, and if it's red cells, it's red cell pheresis, and they're very clever. They're little suitcase-sized devices that can be set up on a small table laying right next to the donor. And um, the donor is, as we say, anticoagulated for the period of time they're on the machine, uh, which means they're not going to clot in the tubing. And then when they're done, juice and cookies, and they're on their way out. This way, we can now draw two red cell units at the same time while returning all the plasma and most of the platelets back to the donor. What is the difference between a platelet and plasma? Ah, the platelets are living cells that staunch bleeding. They're like the, you know, the old story of the Dutch boy who put his finger in the dike? That's the kind of thing it is. Whenever there is an injury to you on the inside of your vessels or to the outside of your body, the platelets are extremely sensitive to that. And they rush to that site and they try to plug the hole uh, themselves. And at the same time, they encourage through chemical signals the clotting factors to come to that spot and form a clot. And uh, the plasma is the fluid, mostly water, that contains your cells, lets them circulate, and carries proteins and sugars and stuff to, to uh, uh, feed your uh, cellular matrix. And it also contains a very complex set of proteins that uh, initiate clotting. How long does the average donation take? Well, I would say generally from the time you walk in and are handed the instructions till the time you leave the canteen where you have your, you rehydrate and have your cookies is probably around 45 minutes. It, uh, it's different from one person to another slightly, but generally speaking, 45 minutes. The donation process itself is actually uh, probably about eight minutes. 
oh, a time right. during which you would squeeze a rubber ball in order to make the blood flow into the back. I see. That's, uh, that's about eight minutes. It's the screening that takes all the time. It's the screening and the recovery and the waiting to go to the next station. Uh, you go to one station to, to fill out your interview papers or be interviewed. The next station is for your temperature and your pulse and your blood pressure be taken and your hemoglobin level. And then you have to wait for a donor chair to be vacant. And then you have to be swabbed properly and needle inserted. Then you squeeze a rubber ball for eight minutes. And then we like you to rest for a while in that chair. And then we dismiss you to the, uh, the canteen. So that's 45 minutes approximately. Is it true that they pay money for donating blood? Oh, I like that question because um, I remember uh, in 1966, when I first rolled off the, uh, the donor table, having done my first blood donation, uh, the, the phlebotomist handed me a $10 bill. I said, well, what the heck is this for? And they said, well, it would have been more, but your blood group is A, and we pay a premium for group O, which would be about $15. It turns out that uh, we did have two types of donors in this country, and probably worldwide, uh, paid donors and volunteer donors. The trouble with payment is that people will lie about their personal health just to donate to make the money. And around the 19, early 1970s, there was an expose of paid donor facilities in the state of Illinois, especially in the city of Chicago. And when that newspaper expose came out, which indicated that the rates of hepatitis were extremely high in Illinois because of paid blood donation, the state of, uh, actually created a law that would not permit the, the donation of blood via payment. Actually, it didn't wipe it out. It just said the units had to be labeled as to source. And since doctors didn't want to take paid blood, those blood banks just dried up and disappeared. You in the United States of America, if you are a blood donor, you are a volunteer blood donor. There is a caveat, one, one thing I did want to mention. Uh, the plasma industry will pay for your time, by which I mean we set up uh, plasma uh, donation centers, usually on college campuses, because we want very young, very healthy, very antibody-laden people uh, to donate. So uh, the, the plasma industry has a good supply of, of plasma. Um, we don't pay for the blood itself, but because it's an extended period of time that they're on the machine, we, we give them a small, what would you call that, uh, an honorarium? I don't know. Uh, a, a bit of money for their time. It's not very much, but it's it's helpful if you're a college student. How often can a person donate blood? Once every eight weeks. Is that how long it takes now to, that's, to recover or to build the blood back or what? That's a good question. I want to make clear that you may donate uh, red cells once every eight weeks. If you're donating two red cells at what, at one time, you will likely uh, be uh, deferred for uh, uh, rather 16 weeks. If you're donating platelets, you can actually do that a couple of times a week because we don't take the red cell mass. It does take a period of time for your body to replenish the red cells that have been removed. It's variable from one person to another, but eight weeks is probably 
nominal for that. I know there's all kinds of issues now with who has the flu and, and this and that. But in normal times, if I have a cold or a fever or something, can I donate blood or, or absolutely not? Again, it's part of that double-edged sword. We want you to donate feeling well and that we wouldn't harm you by taking the donation. But we also want to make sure that the patient isn't compromised. If the patient is receiving blood, one would have to surmise there's something wrong. And if they're already at a deficit of some kind in their health, you don't want to make matters worse. Uh, I did not mention as part of the process of donation that there is a very large battery of tests that are done on the blood um, that prevent as much as is possible the transmission of blood-borne diseases to the recipient. Uh, most of the public knows that we're testing for HIV AIDS. We test for syphilis. We test for cytomegalovirus. We test for West Nile fever. There's a, a, a whole uh, cornucopia of uh, bloodborne diseases that we try to test. You can't actually make the risk of transfusion zero, but we get pretty close. I take a zillion different kinds of pills and medication. Would I be exempt from giving blood? One of the things they will ask you is what kinds of medication you are taking. For some medications, it gives the donor interviewer an idea of some underlying health circumstances that would make it improper for you to donate. And um, there are some medications you can take, and it's not problematic at all. We don't want you to donate if you have serious health concerns. One of the interesting things about the drugs that we take that can or cannot be acceptable is, of all things, aspirin is considered not a drug you want to be on if your donation is strictly for platelets alone, because aspirin uh, interferes with platelet function. But if you're just donating a unit of whole blood, red cells and plasma, that's not a problem. It depends on what kind of product they're going to make from your donation. A person has recently had a vaccine, a vaccination. Can they donate? Um, that's uh, uh, dependent upon the uh, type of vaccination. Uh, the only reason I'm being hesitant about it is because it, it brings back memories. If you ask the donors questions, you know, I, I used to ask them, have you recently been vaccinated against uh, smallpox, measles, mumps, or yellow fever, or tetanus, or typhoid, or paratyphoid, or cholera, diphtheria, or typhus, or Rocky Mountain spotted fever, or plague, or polio. It's funny how all those things stick in your head. There's a considerable number of vaccines for which we're going to wait a specific period of time before you can donate. There are some vaccines that, that you may be able to donate within the week or within two weeks. It's variable from vaccination to vaccination. And that's why we ask you all those questions. We don't screen for coronavirus because we don't have a test for it that is a, a acceptable to the FDA for the transfusion of blood. Whereas on the other side, I would have said that coronavirus doesn't appear to be a blood-borne virus. In other words, the way you catch it is the way everybody's talking about it as, uh, as an airborne uh, uh, virus, uh, not a blood-borne virus. Could the ink that they use in a tattoo or even... Ear, ear or body piercing kind of thing. 
Can those people donate? They can, but there are certain restrictions. First of all, um, let's take piercings because that's become all the rage uh, in my lifetime. Piercings, if done by a reputable uh, uh, location that is under uh, standard regulations in the state in which that agency is regulated, are acceptable after a certain period of time for healing. The same goes for tattoo parlors. If they are, uh, are uh, registered with the state and that they uh, undergo inspections and they operate a fine, sterile service, uh, then, yes, you can be a donor after a specific period of time. But they do wait a certain period. I believe it's, you know, having been out of the industry since uh, for about a decade, I believe it's about six months to a year after you've had piercings uh, or a tattoo. I do not want to misinform your listeners, but I know that there's a waiting period. What should I do before I donate as far as food, fluids? You know, like when you go to the doctor, they say, don't eat for 24 hours. Do you have any restrictions like that? No. Uh, actually, instead of restrictions, I would say, it's just to ensure that you do your normal activities. We want a donor who is properly fed, in other words, has not been fasting, and we want someone who's well hydrated. If you get up in the morning, have your orange juice, have your cranberry juice, have your coffee. Uh, there is no uh, restriction on diet uh, or even having exercise that morning. We want you to be healthy and rested and hydrated. Now something I'm afraid of. Will I faint when I see the needle or blood? And is there anything I could do to prevent that from happening? No, I'm afraid there isn't. If you have a, a fear, and I'm not saying it's an unreasonable fear, uh, of sharp objects, um, that isn't unreasonable. Uh, it, uh, it is why only 5% of uh, Americans who are capable or eligible of donating, donate. And, and a number of people will say exactly what you said, is they're afraid of the needle. The, the funny thing about that is I would rather have them insert a needle in my arm and squeeze a rubber ball for eight minutes than have them do a finger prick. I'm <laughs> always terrified of those. Well. But there are a small cadre of people who can't stand the sight of blood or who cannot uh, abide having a needle inserted in their bodies. And normally I would simply tell them, maybe it isn't a very good idea to donate blood. Because if you were to faint, which technically we call a vasovagal response, it causes uh, some tumult in the donation center. And uh, we have to tend to you and make sure you regain consciousness and uh, that you feel comfortable before you leave the facility. And we may lose that unit of blood as the result of your unconsciousness. So um, we would recommend against people who are that afraid from donating. Now, a few questions, only because we're in the middle of the virus issue. Is it safe for me or anybody to travel to a donor center? That is a question. I cannot answer because there are so many variables. The donor centers are, by very definition, uh, very clean. 
and uh, they have sterilized surfaces. So the place itself is, is not a bad place for you to visit at all. The question today is travel. I don't know how you get where you're going. I don't know what surfaces you're going to touch or have touched. If I knew um, that I could assist someone, I would probably take the risk of going. But I think that that is in the mind of the beholder. Whatever people feel they should do, they should do. We're having a difficult time now getting enough blood units. And I can assure you that if you went to a donor station somewhere in a major blood center or a storefront that's set up for that purpose, uh, everyone there is well aware of protecting uh, patients against uh, uh, disease. But that's a decision that would have to be made by the individual donor. If your blood isn't needed for a coronavirus patient, per se, who's going to help? Things didn't just stop in this lockdown. I know you've heard that um, there are numberless patients who are suffering from uh, the viral disease. But yes, elective surgeries have been canceled, but the world goes on. People become ill. People have accidents. So the hospitals are still full of people who require treatment for other than uh, COVID-19. And for those people, we don't have a comfortable supply of blood. Fully a quarter of the blood that's drawn in this country is drawn through high schools and colleges. And they're not in school. So we've lost at least that volume. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical, I'm not a physician. I'm a clinical laboratory scientist, and my specialty is the field of transfusion medicine. It is the blood bank industry uh, that is poised to provide convalescent plasma because they've already got a, a, a 75-year-old system that interviews, examines, and screens donors, and all we would add to it is to do testing to see the strength of the antibody response in the donor. And then we would put them on these various uh, devices that do extracorporeal collection of plasma, and then uh, do the proper testing that we do for any blood product and make that available to the researchers who are doing these uh, double-blind studies that uh, are looking at the efficacy of convalescent plasma. I think it's a terrific idea. It worked during the first SARS epidemic. It worked during the MERS epidemic. And remember, these were only uh, experimental at the time. And it appears anecdotally to be working uh, in the case of COVID-19. So I'm, I would really like to see far more studies and that means as soon as people are convalescent and we test them and find that they have strong antibodies, we are going to draw them. And we hope that they will be kind enough to be selfless and altruistic and make their plasma available. Thanks for listening to Our Town Live. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a review. 